You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we're in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you've got your Bibles, it's a great place to turn to or on your device. Acts 2, 1 through 13. Just a mini-review, we've done three lessons in Acts chapter 1, and we've traced what the disciples have done during this uh, 50 days from Jesus' crucifixion to his ascension. Jesus spent 40 days with them. Uh, How we would have liked to have had uh, those lessons that he gave the disciples, and I think they're reflected in our New Testament. I really don't think we're probably missing anything. The apostles conveyed what Jesus taught in that 40 days uh, through their writings in the New Testament, in the letters, as well as the Gospels. I think we get it. And then we were impressed with how the disciples went about choosing the 12th person. And the point made, I think, in the text by Luke is that the concern isn't so much with apostolic succession, but the apostolic tradition. And the apostolic tradition representing the 12 tribes of Israel being fulfilled now in the 12 apostles. And in John chapter one, uh, Revelation chapter 1, John speaks of the 24 elders, which unites both the Old Testament tribes of Israel and the New Testament apostles as one unified whole. Um, It's so important to see that the Old Testament is not like a rocket booster that falls to the earth and is no longer important. Uh, The Old Testament and the New Testament are really one gospel and one message. The disciples now have waited 10 days, uh, and in that 10-day period, and, and 10 has this sort of symbolic sense of completeness and wholeness. It's just interesting, 40 and 10. Um, there's something uh, involved with the, the symbolic nature of time that uh, the Bible uh, presents to us. And in that 10 days, they have waited, they have prayed together, and that's how we meet them at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, let's pray together, and then I'll read. Lord God, thank you again for gathering us together on this Lord's Day to worship you as a body of believers. We pray now in gratitude and thanksgiving for your promised presence. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to us from your word, not just for more information about the Christian life, uh, but that which leads to true formation and transformation in our lives. Together we give you thanks and praise and praise you. Uh, we pray for our sister in Christ who will have surgery on Tuesday on her finger. We pray that that go- will go well and that you would uh, help the surgeon and help her in her recovery. Together we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts 2, uh, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You know, this is kind of a, uh, it's an event. Uh, what we will look at, uh, oh, I was going to say this at the beginning. We aren't meeting next week. Um, skipping a Sunday. Uh, Virginia and I have been invited to go back to Central Presbyterian Church in New York City. They're celebrating their 200th year. Uh, it has had many variations uh, in 200 years. But um, these last 10 to 15 have experienced real spiritual renewal at 64th and Park. And so it's, uh, I'm not going back to preach. I'm going back just to have a good time with the Fellowship of Believers there. And the Lord has really blessed that church in a tremendous way. Uh, Central Presbyterian Church in New York City. Look it up sometime uh, on the website uh, if you like. So not next week. Uh, and then we will be back, and when we come back, we'll take up Peter's Pentecost sermon, which is a great sermon. Um, so what would we concentrate on in these uh, 13 verses dealing with the coming of the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus and now fills each and every believer. There's kind of three acts of the Spirit. There's from Genesis to Bethlehem is the first act of the Spirit. And in that period of time, the Holy Spirit came selectively on individuals, on persons, in a dramatic and sometimes very powerful way, like the prophets, uh, and the patriarchs experienced the filling of the Spirit. What's unique now at Pentecost is all the followers of Jesus Christ uh, have the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The second act is from Bethlehem to, to the Ascension. And then the third act, you know, the man of the Spirit, Jesus being... Uh, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit as the embodiment of the incarnate Father, all uh, in one, one in all. Um, the third act, though, is from Pentecost uh, and, and following um, the presence of the Holy Spirit. What's maybe striking about this, and different ones have pointed it out, is that 
what happens in Luke's account of the acts of the apostles or the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of the Spirit of Christ uh, is not in any way initiated by human action. Uh, The whole uh, beginning of the church, and I think the continuation of the church, is, is not a matter of human strategizing or human design or uh, clever development by, by us. If anything, this speaks of uh, a kind of willed passivity on the part of the church where we wait for the Spirit. Very hard for Westerners to, I, mean, I think, contemplate this kind, of, this kind of passivity, which is not an indifference and it's not an apathy. It's a waiting upon God and the Holy Spirit does it. I remember an article by Richard Halverson, who was for a time the uh, chaplain for the Senate. He was also the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethsaida, uh, Maryland. And Halverson wrote an article and said, you know, uh, the church is not held hostage to the economy. That the church doesn't necessarily need Western money to be the church and to fulfill God's will. And I think that that is not only the economy, but our strategizing, our professionalization, our work. Uh, We still, in a sense, wait for the Holy Spirit to work and to operate. And I think it's still our prayer that we don't want to get out in front of the work of God, but instead uh, pattern our lives after the work. Uh, On your study sheet, I hope you can grab one that's close by you. Uh, Pentecost is known as the Feast of Weeks. And there's some Old Testament scriptures from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy that I listed there, or the Feast of Harvest and the Day of First Fruits. Pentecost, uh, 50 days after the Passover, comes to celebrate God's abundance, God's provision, God's help in providing food. Pentecost also came to be associated with celebrating the giving of the law in Jewish tradition. I like that connection between food and the word of God. Uh, As the Lord blessed physically, the Lord also blessed spiritually. And there's an organic nature to, there's also an incarnational nature of the physical and the spiritual. And God providing uh, both of these together. And in the Jewish uh, tradition, both are celebrated at Pentecost. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul famously talks about the gifts of apostles and prophets and teachers, he alludes to Christ's ascension and Christ giving gifts. And he quotes from Psalm 68 which is a psalm that's associated with Pentecost. Paul does. He quotes from Psalm 68. I find that just interesting because as we reflect on Acts, so far we've had Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and now Psalm 68. Uh, They are steeped in praying the Psalms, the the apostles. And uh, it comes out in how they reflect and how they think. Personally, for me, 
When I think of this organic connection between the physical and the spiritual, food and the Word of God, uh, I think of uh, a friend, Dan Lamb, who was a, uh, a person that got me involved in ministry in Mongolia. Uh, he went, he was one of the first uh, Westerners to carry the gospel into Mongolia with the change from communism to a more open society in the early 90s. And it was his concern to train uh, the unreached, spread the gospel to the unreached and train early believers in the gospel. I went with him and uh, I think we went four times uh, to Mongolia. Uh, and, uh, and Dan then... Uh, mid-90s, died in a plane crash in Siberia. Um, he, uh, I may have told his story before, but uh, he was, tr he and his wife uh, were transformed by a weekend with John Stott on the kingdom lifestyle. He lived in London at the time and had three construction projects on three different continents. Uh, and Dan was a very, very, uh, I, I don't know if he ever rested. Uh, he was constantly on the go. Uh, and yet I just think, you know, speaking at his memorial service on John 12, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. In a way, uh, Dan's life uh, bore tremendous fruit in the giving of his life uh, as well. Uh, at one point... Uh, he and a small group of people were supporting 400 Vietnamese lay pastors in Vietnam. Uh, uh, he was principally uh, responsible for starting Nam Penh Bible School. Um, just a, uh, and yet nobody knows him. Nobody knows that name, Dan Lamb, outside of you know a circle of people. Uh, he will not show up in any history of missions book, probably. And he flew under the radar on purpose. He really didn't want to be known because he felt being known would interfere with the impact of the ministry. Just really interesting person, huh, to know uh, and to look forward to seeing again in heaven. Uh, number two, the global impact. Now, this is important for, uh, for the church today because here they are in Jerusalem but Luke feels it's important to identify all of these countries. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm trying to... Uh, I'm looking for the verse that says, all every... Okay, verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Osvaldo Padilla says that that's a hyperbole, uh, and it's more of a literary device of just speaking of everybody. Uh, I mean, it, it has that feeling that the whole world is there in Jerusalem uh, at this Passover time, which was, you know, uh, converts from uh, Jews from all over the world and converts to Judaism would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. What's important, though, is then Luke takes uh, and describes from west to east all of these countries that are represented. 
I think that's just such an important statement for missions and for the church. The church at the outset is concerned about the global impact of the gospel. It's not provincial. It's not local alone. It's not narrow. Uh, Whatever stage a particular local church is at in its development, I think this is an essential understanding, an essential truth, that we are sisters and brothers in Christ with uh, people from every nation. You know, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That global sense, I think, is really important uh, for the church. And in a moment, we're going to see sort of a a Genesis 11 reference in a way to Babel being reversed. But what happens in Genesis 11 takes place after the description in Genesis 10 of the table of the nations. And at great length, the nations are described in Genesis 10, this global perspective before Genesis 11. And the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 is hovering over the formlessness and the chaos and the darkness and uh, the Holy Spirit's activity to create out of that nothingness uh, the world that we live in. And now the Holy Spirit hovers over these nations, over these people, as it were, over this uh, uh, collection of humanity and brings forth the church. It's really the parallels here uh, are so interesting and yet implicit. You know, Luke doesn't have a, a, a parenthetical thought here. Well, you know, I'm referencing Genesis 10 here. And uh, it ties in with Genesis 11. And you ought to pick up. It's expected that we get it, uh, that we understand the word of God sufficiently that these connections are made in our minds and hearts. Uh, So tongues of fire language. uh, My brother is a linguist. uh, And uh, maybe that's why I pay attention to language also. I am really poor in language. It's one of the things that, um, you know, I just, Gerald Bray has like a list of languages he knows and can communicate in. Um, And I just, uh, I guess I'm sort of envious of people who really can fluently speak uh, another language, other languages. it's not for the lack of study, um, but it's, it's something. Um, but can you imagine? I mean, I, um, you know, I've done a lot of traveling uh, and working in other places where I've been dependent on a translator. And uh, like the Mongolian translator that I had, uh, most of the visits that were there was just wonderful. I mean, he, took what uh, I was providing and you know you can just you could tell by their the hearer's reaction that it was working well and we got along great too. Um, PhD student in Germany who also knew 
English, who uh, was a really faithful uh, brother in Christ. Uh, when David Mensah translates, uh, has translated for me numerous times in Ghana, uh, I think he takes my five loaves and two fishes and multiplies it into this uh, really powerful message. Uh, in, you know, so it, he does the contextualization work for me. Uh, I sort of stand up there and present it, and he, he really proclaims it. Uh, language is a tremendous gift for us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, the italicized print there, I'll read it. Uh, this is from a Crux article that uh, he wrote. Language is unique to us human beings. It's quite impressive, really, what goes on around us with words. Ocean tides, mountain heights, stormy weather, turning constellations, genetic codes, bird migrations. Most in effect of what we see and hear around us a great deal of it incredibly complex, but without language, wordless. And we, we human beings, have words. We can use language. We are the only ones in this stunning kaleidoscope array of geology and biology and astronomy to use words. Uh, what a gift it is to be able to kind of express ourselves, to think it through. Uh, and to articulate. Uh, and the Holy Spirit, you know, is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit guides us in all truth. Uh, Jesus even cut off his teaching sessions in the upper room because he, they couldn't take it, but he was reliant upon the Holy Spirit to bring all truth to the fore because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Enter the Holy Spirit. Number two, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was accompanied by three supernatural phenomenon, which Luke likened to natural phenomenon. Again, this organic and spiritual connection. A, a violent rushing wind that filled the whole house. A wildfire which separated into tongues of fire that came to rest on each of them. And see, known intelligible languages. The comparison to a violent wind sweeping through the whole house signifies kind of an invading spirit. The comparison to tongues of fire resting on each disciple signifies the convicting spirit. And the ability to speak in other languages signifies the prophesying spirit. Only one of these has the potential of seeing, and that would be the tongues of fire. And I'm not so sure they actually saw something. Uh, but this was Luke's way of speaking of that convicting spirit because fire is a symbol for purifying and conviction. So I don't know what they saw, but we know what they experienced. And what they experienced was the power of the spirit uh, enabling them to speak the gospel in all of these languages. Uh, what a gift, what a powerful gift. Number three, Babel reversed. Luke says that the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And there's something about um, hearing the gospel in 
one's mother tongue, praying in one's mother's tongue, that uh, worldwide is phenomenally important. Um, and that's why groups like Wycliffe Bible Translators work for years to translate uh, the scriptures into a language that, you know, from a worldly standpoint, does not deserve the attention. It's going to die out, or it's so small. But in God's eyes, it would seem that Acts 2 and Pentecost would affirm all languages and affirm the peoples of that language. They explained, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And perhaps it's best to think of tongues as having a range of meanings from the miraculous ability to speak in other languages. I put this in here because of maybe the natural questions that you might have as to, well, what what is it to speak in tongues? What What happens here at Pentecost? Could there be a variety of linguistic manifestations of the Spirit of God, everything from the sort of ecstatic praise language, which I'm not going to rule out. Uh, I've never experienced it, but uh, if you knew my personality, you probably wouldn't be surprised. Um, No ecstatic praise language. Um, An ecstatic praise language, unintelligible unless it's interpreted that type of um, tongues. But in the case of Pentecost, it seems like these are languages that are known, understood, and uh, empowering the gospel to be heard. Uh, It reverses the Tower of Babel. Remember, the Tower of Babel was written, uh, was, was built in order for people to make a name for themselves because they were fearful of their scatter, being scattered, and so they concentrated their attention and concentrated their power in building this uh, Tower of Babel. Interesting, the etymology for Babel, Babel, uh, from the original Shinar population of people meant gate of God. For the Hebrews, Babel meant confusion. And so you have, in a way, people apart from God or not recognizing the true God saying, we're the gate of God and we're building that gate. And you have the Hebrew people looking at that and saying, no, this is confusion. But what Pentecost does is affirm every language. The last line of that paragraph on the first page, everyone speaking in their own tongue is different from everyone hearing the gospel in their own language. Uh, the first impact of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was to break the language barrier. Pentecost is our biblical warrant for saying that God accepts languages. And so should we. Um, There's two reactions to Pentecost. Uh, Luke describes these uh, as, toward the end there, what we read... uh, Those that wondered at this, we hear them declaring the wonders of God. That's an interesting way of describing the message, the wonders of God in our own tongues. Uh, You know, what was it that was said for them to express it, wonders of God? That would also, I mean, that would point, what is the wonders of God is, I, I think if we were to speculate here, 
There's something of the drama of salvation history that leads them to this point, that the Messiah indeed has come, and the suffering servant has suffered. And uh, Jesus is the incarnation of God. These would be the wonders of God expressed here. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? I guess when you declare the gospel well, that's the kind of question you want. What does this mean? Uh, There is a process that goes on in our receiving God, his message, his grace, that asks us, you know, puts the question on us, well, what does this mean? How do I uh, understand this? Uh, And I think in presenting the gospel, uh, it's not ticking a box. I'm going to say yes to Jesus and then I'm done with it. It's the beginning of a long process of conversion. Uh, I I agree with Dale Bruner, every conversion is a virgin birth. Uh, The Spirit works in such a way as to bring about something that could not happen apart from God. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Uh, We're always going to have that split decision, I think, between those who uh, receive and those who mock. for some reason, the screw tape letters came to mind, and C.S. Lewis, uh, number two there on the back side of the uh, page. C.S. Lewis, as a senior devil, instruct his apprentice Wormwood in the fine art of flippancy. Uh, you've met some people, right, who have a terrible time taking in serious stuff, um, and their first, first encounter always is kind of to flip it off. Uh, every serious subject is discussed. This is the, the devil speaking to his apprentice, um, if you know the book at all. Every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a person the finest armor plating against the enemy, God, that I know. Because you just aren't open to any sort of serious reflection or input, uh, or intake. Uh, Well, we just have a couple minutes left. Let's look at the conclusion. We'll run through this. Pentecost is not about personal language acquisition as much as it is about the sanctification of all languages for the sake of the gospel. There is no sacred language. you know, the Arabs believe, Muslims believe that you need to read the Quran in Arabic if you're going to really be serious about understanding it. Uh, we don't believe that you have to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew in order to have a serious understanding of it. We just don't. Hebrew is not a sacred language. Greek is not a sacred language. And what I find very interesting is so much of our New Testament is quoting not from the Hebrew text, but from the Greek text. So these apostles are already making a big distinction. Uh, They're quoting from the message. And some of it is just as different as Eugene Peterson's translation of the message from the NIV or the ESV. But there's great freedom in the spirit for them to do that. 
so it's just helpful to know there's no sacred language. They're all valuable. They're all sanctified. They're all part of the communication of the gospel. Uh, number two, we're called to be God's tribal linguist telling the story of redemption. And uh, I may have to finish with this. Uh, when Virginia and I and our kids for the first time went to Ghana, uh, we visited a tribe on our first couple days there uh, uh, named Janga. And uh, Janga must be about the hottest place in the earth, I think. It is so hot. It's on the edge of the humidity and the Sahara, and I think the combination is pretty deadly. Uh, we spent one night where the temperature did not come below 100, and the humidity must have been 97. You were just out under mosquito nets outside, um, feeling like you were in a sauna and you couldn't get out. Uh, but on our uh, on meeting, which is protocol in these villages, you go and meet the chief as a, and, and not to do that is an insult. So we went, we presented gifts. Uh, this is, uh, there was, a, I mean, it was a procession of men dancing with all their might and drums and dust being kicked up and women uh, singing. I mean, it was a very festive occasion. And uh, we met the tribal linguist. A man in his 80s, thin, uh, but very charismatic. And he danced and he told the story of the tribe. That was his job. It's a second hereditary line. They have the chief as a hereditary line and they have the linguist as a tribal, as a ling they call him linguist in, in their language. Uh, we would call him poet, but it's not so much, you know, learning the language is using the language. Uh, that almost makes me a linguist, but um, with all my deficiencies. But so he, here we met this tribal linguist. On the flight over, I was going to do the pastoral epistles with, um, with 30 bivocational pastors, most of them farmers and fishermen. And the, the flight over, you know, is a long one. <laughs> And I got more and more uneasy about the material that I had worked on. I had worked on this material, and I preached through it at my, our church in San Diego. And so I felt really well-versed in the material, but it just seemed so Western. Every application just seemed like I was enculturated. And, uh, and I wondered what to do. And when we met the tribal English, I knew what we should do. We should start in Genesis and go to Revelation. We had six days, six hours a day, and we were just going to walk through the Bible and get a sense of the whole picture. Now, I came back home to San Diego and decided I needed to be able to do this better than I did it with them. Uh, and I preached from Genesis to Malachi over several years uh, with Advent and Lent and gospel teaching in between. Uh, but I challenge the pastors to be God's linguists, telling the story of the gospel. And they, they got that. They knew the tribal linguist heritage and all that. And so they got it. They owned that identity, God's linguist, telling the story of Christ. So Pentecost, in a sense, gets replicated constantly as we share this gospel in the spirit. Uh, 
Amen? <laughs> Lord God, thank you for blessing us with the gospel. Help us to be mindful of learning your, the language of the gospel so as to be able to share it in the spirit. Together we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.